familiar with the life of John the Baptist. You know John the Baptist, we've heard of him. Ah. Cousin of Jesus. He's the one who came and prepared the way for Jesus, uh, preaching this message of repentance, baptizing people in the Jordan River. Um, and remember what, what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said that he was the greatest, basically the greatest man that ever lived. He said, of, of anyone born of a woman, um, there has risen none greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's huge. That's pretty high praise uh, from Jesus himself. So let me ask you, how did John's life turn out? I said last week that if you trust God, if you walk in obedience to him, there's, there's blessing in that. And so if, if John the Baptist, as Jesus said, um, is, is the greatest that has risen, if he, he knew the Old Testament better um, than anyone uh, or better than many at least, and he obeyed it, walked in it better than anyone who lived up to that point. Surely, John must have had a pretty sweet life, right? Comfortable home, riding the nicest of camels, eating the best matzo ball soup and falafel around, certainly lived to a ripe old age and, and died in peace, right? Wasn't that, isn't that John? No, we, we know better. John was homeless. So far as we know, John was camelless. John ate locusts and honey in the wilderness. Hudson, you up for locusts and honey this afternoon? Sound good? You, you lived in Africa. That's not fair. <laughs> you probably had some weirder stuff than that. Um, that's, that's not top of my list to eat. Um, he died in his mid-30s, his head cut off. Not, not really a glamorous life. Not a life that we would point to and say, there's blessing. There's richness, Right? So what's going on? Is there blessing to follow God? Is there something good for those who obey? And the answer is yes. It is absolutely a resounding yes. God promises it and, and it will be so. And we're going to return to that soon enough. And, and I don't think any of what I'm going to say this morning contradicts that. But at the same time, as we're following Moses and the Israelites through the book of Exodus, chapter 5 reminds us that following the Lord also comes with opposition, also comes with suffering and trial and hardship and sacrifice. It's very much what John faced. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible this morning, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. We want you to have God's word open in your lap. Um, that it wouldn't be uh, my words that we walk away thinking about this morning, but God's word. Um, the end of chapter 4, Moses had finally made it back to Egypt. He, he shows up on the scene with the staff of God in his hand and the, the power of God behind him. And he and Aaron um, present the elders with the miraculous signs that God had told them to do. And chapter 4 ends with Israel believing and they rejoice together that, that God has seen their misery and he's, he's coming to rescue them. And that was a great blessing for Moses and Aaron. And, and certainly now we're just, we're expecting great things, right? This is going to be awesome from here on out. God has come to rescue them and they've pledged their allegiance to God. And, and so everything's going to be great from here, right? But, but we find that God's rescue plan and their obedience to God in chapter 4 um, turns out into suffering in chapter 5. It, it doesn't make their lives easier. It makes their lives harder. 
So as we look together at chapter 5, we're going to see that when you follow God, you've got to expect opposition against God and suffering for those who follow Him. And it begs the question of us, where will we turn? So let's, uh, let's look first at, at verses 1 to 9 in, in Exodus chapter 5 there. Um, and here we see we ought to expect opposition against God. It says, After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters and the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past, but let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them, on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So Moses and Aaron went in before Pharaoh, as God has commanded them. And this is the first time these significant words are used. They say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Uh, If you remember back chapter 4, verses uh, 15 and 16, the Lord told Moses, I'm going to put my words in your mouth and you're to put those words into Aaron's mouth and I will be with your mouth and with Aaron's mouth. So the words that you speak will be my words. This is a, the common experience of the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, they frequently use this phrase, thus says the Lord. And, and notice uh, Aaron goes then to speaking in first person as if it were God himself speaking. Um, this is what biblical prophecy is. This is what it means. It's without error. It's without question. There's no hesitancy or tentativeness here. It is the word of God with all of its authority being proclaimed. That's the way the apostles spoke as Christ's chosen ambassadors saying that that their words were not the words of men, but the words of God. So what we have here is not Moses and Pharaoh or Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh. This is the Lord against Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron aren't really part of the picture here. They're they're just the messengers of God's message. God is speaking by them and saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. And and Pharaoh responds with just absolute opposition to God. No way, not a chance. Now, remember, um, when you look at the word Lord there, all capital letters, verse one, what's actually behind that? What's the Hebrew word behind that? It's Yahweh. Right? What, is, what does Yahweh mean? It means, I am. Look at what Pharaoh does. And it's worth noting, these are the first words that we hear out of the mouth of this Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron say, the I am has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is this I am? And he says that I should obey him, that 
I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. He's, he's putting himself in the place of God. He's saying, I am a greater I am than that I am. Down in verse 10, he responds to the Lord's, thus says the Lord with thus says Pharaoh. I mentioned a few times already, this first question out of Pharaoh's mouth is the ultimate act of defiance. Um, this is setting the stage for the, the rest of the Exodus. Who is the Lord? He's saying, I, I will not give him recognition. I will not give him honor. Uh, I will not acknowledge his power or authority. I'm in charge around here. I'm the one who rules. Who is the Lord? And of course, Pharaoh himself is a fairly complex figure as we look at this story in the, in the course of revelation in, in God's redemptive history. Again, this, this is a historical account. It's not less than that, but there's more going on here than that. God is revealing himself. And so God has so positioned Pharaoh that, that he not only speaks for himself, but he stands representing the basic elements of opposition against God. The Bible speaks, I think, pretty generally about three powers, three categories of opposition against the Lord. You have Satan who is a, a personal being. Um, he thinks, he plans, he, he works against God in a personal way, along with his demons. And then you have the world. Uh, it's a little more vague of a category. Um, as you read the word world, particularly through the New Testament, we really have to rely on the context to know exactly what's being spoken of there. And sometimes it's used in a very negative sense. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. 2 Peter 1, we're called to escape the corruption of the world. Uh, 1 John 5, it's promised that we will overcome the world. So the world, in this sense, means this, this worldly system of opposition against God. So there's Satan, there's the world, which is the, the culture, the community created by those who do not know God. And then there's the last category of sin. And, and the Bible speaks of sin not, not only as um, our individual sins, but as this power, this force that is in opposition to God that's at work in our lives. And so Pharaoh is in this unique position. He's representing all three, Satan, the world, and sin. And, and all three of these oppose God and are bent toward tearing down the name of God and taking for themselves the glory of God. And the end goal here actually is, is stated in verse 9. Uh, Let heavier work be laid on them. And if you think about that phrase, um, even in the English, I think it's clear. He's saying, let them be more devoted to me. Let them serve me more. Um, but I think that becomes really clear if we push into the Hebrew here. Um, if you remember, we talked in chapter 1 about that, that word serve or slave and, and said that's going to be really important as we go forward, and we'll continue to come back to this. The word avad, uh, it means serve or slave, but it's also used very specifically in worship. It was a service of worship. So we see this battle between the Lord and Pharaoh for the, the service of the Israelites. And, and remember, uh, in, in chapter 4, God said, I will rescue them that they may serve me. And Pharaoh's saying, no, 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 they're going to serve me. It's a battle over worship. 
But there's another word here that is significant, um, that will continue to be a significant word again as we go forward, and it's the word kavod. Literally, kavod means heavy, weighty. And it often means that literally, um, a weighty rock. But more figuratively, it's used, um, someone's presence is weighty. We would say those are, those are heavy words. That movie was heavy. It left an impact on me. The word kavod is also often translated as glory throughout the Old Testament. God's glory is God's weightiness, his significance. So Pharaoh says, give them a heavier service. And and we could play with that translation a little bit. And I think without stretching it quite too far, we could say that Pharaoh demands that the people give me a more glorious worship. It's about God and Pharaoh battling over glory, battling over service and worship. That's the battle that rages. It's the the service of God versus the service of Pharaoh, the the worship of God versus the worship of Pharaoh, or the the significance of God versus the significance of Pharaoh, the, the glory of God versus the glory of Pharaoh. And it's a war. A war that continues to rage on, and we would do well to recognize this. Satan and the world and sin are opposed to God. They're at war with God. And so all of the people under the influence of Satan and sin and the world are also at war with God. The Bible is clear. There's no middle ground here. There are no conscientious objectors in this war. Even those that say, you know what, I'm just indifferent. I don't, I don't want to get involved. I'm going I'm to sit this one out. Or even say that they, they believe in God, but just not necessarily the God of the Bible and all the ways he reveals himself to be. I'm not really ready to go all that far. Maybe they even call themselves Christians and they go to church and they live a, a moral life. But when it comes down to it, um, they're not serving the Lord. They've not fully submitted themselves to who God is. The Bible says they're enemies of God. They're not somewhere in between. There is no middle ground. Satan, this world, and sin, and every person who has not been born again, who has not been, as Colossians 1.13 puts it, delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, is at war with God. So as long as Satan lives, which he does, As long as this world exists, saturated with sin and sinners, which it is, we live on this cosmic battlefield, this tug of war between the glory of God and the glory of Satan, the glory of sin, the glory of the world. We ought to expect that opposition. This is a battlefield. And ultimately, trying to convince us that we would do better to pay more attention, give more weight to the world, more significance to what sin desires from us, more glory to the things of this world as we say, no, God, I'm not going to serve you and live for you. I'm going to serve and live for these things. So as we devote ourselves to serving the Lord, we have to expect that opposition 
to know if I, if I join God's team, if I give myself to his service, I'm positioning myself in this war against the worldly system that I live in. I'm positioning myself against the sin that still exists in me, the sin that rules in the lives of those that I interact with. And I'm positioning myself at war against Satan himself. We ought to expect opposition to God. And because of that, we ought to expect suffering for ourselves. We ought to expect trial. Look at verses 10 to 14 here in Exodus 5. The taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily tasks each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all of the task of making bricks today as yesterday and as in the past? Notice Pharaoh still rules over Egypt. God is still sovereign over all. He is still in the position of ultimate authority. God has put Satan or Pharaoh in that position. He's raised him up for that Pharaoh only continues to live because God grants him his next breath. And yet he does continue to exercise authority in Egypt. He continues to rule, even over the people of God who were there. Pharaoh's not happy about the Lord's demands, and so he he attacks them. He increases their burden. He causes them to suffer. Seems to me this was poorly explained to me growing up. Um, I had it in my head that, that they had to make bricks with no straw, um, but you can't make bricks the way they were doing with no straw. Um, the challenge was they had to keep making bricks with straw, but Pharaoh was no longer going to provide the straw. I don't know what the system had been set up, but now you need to go and get your own straw. And so their work is significantly increased. And it's humiliating and backbreaking. They're they're now spread all over the countryside on their hands and knees, pulling the the stubble from the harvested fields and and trying to collect the straw to make their bricks. And they're still required to make the same amount of bricks as before. It's impossible. What's the goal here? Well, Pharaoh is trying to drive this wedge between the people and Moses as the spokesperson of God, between God and his people. Moses comes and declares to the people that that God is coming to rescue them. And he goes in and tells Pharaoh, God is going to rescue these people. And God says, I'll show you. I'm going to make these people hate God. I'm going to make them wish, Moses, that you had never come. So he makes their lives harder, more miserable, not less. Sure enough, in the verses to follow, they begin to blame Moses, as if Moses was the problem here. Just like Pharaoh, Satan has authority in this world. He has power. He has influence here. Now, again, God is sovereign over him. Even Satan, we don't believe in dualism. We don't believe that there is a God and a Satan who are in this epic battle and we're not sure which one is going to win. 
God is creator. He created Satan. Satan only continues to exist because God sustains him. God actively keeps him in existence. And yet, Ephesians 2.2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's called the God, small g, the God of this age. If you're going to pledge allegiance to the Lord, Satan is going to throw everything he has against you. And he's powerful. He's going to work to turn you against Christ. He's going to work to make you wish you had never followed God. To keep you ineffective and discouraged in your pursuit of God. That's how he attacks God. You need to expect opposition to God and know that that's going to trickle down into hard trials and suffering for us. Now, this whole thing about spiritual warfare um, always catches people's attention and I think leaves a lot of people confused and and even deceived. Um, Let's just camp here for a second. What does it mean to have Satan as our enemy? What does it mean to be the object of his attacks? Um, Now, let's be clear. Satan is real. I I know that's, uh, that's getting thrown out all over the place, but he's real. The Bible presents him as a personal being. He's an angel that God created who rebelled against God. And so presumably he's very powerful, as the angels are. And yet, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but I suspect Satan doesn't care about you. Not specifically. There's one Satan. One. He's not like God. He's not infinite. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't know everything. He's not everywhere at the same time. He's limited. And again, I, I hate to poke your pride, but, but I just don't think you're that important. And I don't think I'm that important. We're just not on his radar. But there are also demons. We don't know how many. Uh, Revelation 12 uh, seems to imply that a third of the demons left heaven and followed Satan in that great rebellion. So quite a few. And, and, and I wrestled over whether this little rabbit trail is worth running or not. I don't know if this is helpful. Um, Let me say this. Don't put stock in what I'm about to say. Um, This is speculation. This is totally going off the map. Don't take this overly seriously, but it's maybe it's a little bit helpful. Jesus said to Pilate um, that he could call down 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue. Almost Certainly metaphorical. Twelve is a very metaphorical number in, in the Hebrew language. I think Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Um, but, but let's just go with it as, as a place to start. A Roman legion is 6,000 men. So the angels left that have not rebelled, two-thirds of the angels, uh, is 12 legions. That's 72,000. Meaning 36,000 fallen angels. We've said at least a few times, um, all of those numbers are only going to get bigger and not smaller. So let's throw 50% more on there just for the heck of it. 54,000 demons, um, 7.6 billion people in the world. So that's one demon for every 141,000 people. Again, total speculation, probably more, but, but maybe it gives us an idea. It helps me to just put like, a, oh yeah, there's an actual finite number. 
If that's anywhere near accurate and they're spread out according to uh, evenly with human population. So we're looking at like eight or 10 demons in Calgary, one in Red Deer, one-tenth of one across Mountain View County. Um, Now, you might, in your lifetime, you may interact with a demon. You may come to some, you may be in the same space as a demon. You very likely will not know it. Uh, And people often say, wouldn't wouldn't you know if you're in the presence of evil? Maybe, but maybe not. There there are twice as many angels, and I, I don't walk in a room and go, oh, there's clearly a presence of light here. You may, you may not. And, and demons do cause sickness and physical pain and, and blindness and disease and seizures and all kinds of things. Read through the Gospels. Now, I think as we read the Gospels, they know what's going on. There is a massive concentration. It's all hands on deck in Israel at that time. I think there's a significant heightened concentration of demonic activity. Um, but they do those things. Those things are happening. They can even produce false miracles and false signs. We, we, we ought not to be surprised by that. But here's the thing. Satan is smarter than to waste his time and his limited resources on, on one-to-one attacks. That's just not the best way to do it. I was talking with someone just last week who said they have a friend who, who is commonly attacked by demons, like a regular thing. And again, certainly possible. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't cast that out of hand, but I think that's much more likely the distraction than the main strategy. We easily get caught up trying to, to sense a dark spirit or cast a demon out of something, um, break some demonic bondage, and we completely miss the fact that we are swimming in an ocean of spiritual attack. Spiritual warfare is the air we breathe. It's the world we live in. The pressure, the stress is a, is a very real spiritual attack of living under the system of this world. It's a carefully, skillfully created system that is bent by sin and Satan against Christianity, against God and therefore against us to distract us, set to destroy us. Don't, don't miss that. Uh, As you look at Ephesians 6, the the most significant passage about spiritual warfare, Paul says, stand firm against the attack of the evil one. Do battle with Satan. It's all about protecting your heart and your mind and your faith. It's what you believe. It's what you know to be true. That's how Satan attacks most commonly. According to the logic of Ephesians, the reason we need the armor of God is to believe and to live in everything that's been commanded in those first chapters of the book. To trust God's goodness and salvation in a world that says there is no God or if that God exists, you must be evil. It's to understand ourselves and those outside of Christ as dead in their trespasses and sins in a world that says, no, no, everyone's basically good. It's to rest in salvation by grace alone through faith alone in a world that says at the same time you need to earn everything you have and you're worth it. You deserve everything. To see ourselves as part of the church of Jesus Christ in a a world that pushes for fierce individualism. It's to live in unity as the church, speaking the truth in love to one another in a world that says to correct or contradicts someone as an act of hate. 
How about this? For wives to submit to their husbands in a world that calls that outdated patriarchal bigotry. For husbands to lay down their lives in loving servant leadership of their wives in a world that encourages men either to be lazy and disconnected, absorbed in whatever manly hobby they have, or to be passive and weak and leave the burden of leadership to their wives. It's to work hard at your job to the glory of God in a world that says you ought to try to get as much as you can while doing as little as you can. That's just a, a flyover of Ephesians. These are the things that, that, that God is saying, believe these things, live in these things, and to do that, there's, there's spiritual warfare against you in that. Spiritual warfare is Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you might discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Spiritual warfare is when you allow Satan to corrupt your thinking, to begin to value the things of this world over the things of God. Pressure us to, to think like the world instead of think like Christ. It's Satan's pervasive and powerful propaganda against us. I was legitimately surprised the first time I studied out uh, 2 Corinthians 10.4. There are whole ministries devoted to breaking spiritual strongholds. And I always had a hard time with that because it's biblical language. So what does that mean? Um, they're doing this, this demon thing, breaking strongholds. And as is almost always the case, um, if you ever get hung up on something, the, the, the first step, the best step, is just to read the verses before and after. See if that clears it up. And, and I'll tell you, 99% of the time it does. Listen to how Paul demolishes the strongholds and what that tells us about them. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And there we go. There's this, there's this demon thing. There's this spiritual battle. We've got to break a stronghold here. Look at verse 5. How does he do it? We destroy arguments. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's a war of faith. It's a war of who you're going to believe who are you going to trust? Who are you going to value and honor and serve? Where will you give glory? It's a war over how we think. That's the war against us. Some parts of that, the world, that war plays out in oppressive Islam. Some places it plays out with Hinduism. In the West, it's pretty convoluted right now. It's a pretty dynamic strategy. It's secularism. It's individualism. It's the cult of success. It's the tolerance in the LGBTQ movement. It's trust your heart and believe in yourself. It's worship in the environment. It's all these different messages coming at us. And yet I find it interesting. The message of the world is the same today as it was from Pharaoh to Israel. He says to Moses in verse 4, Why do you take the people away from their work? What's he saying? He's saying, Moses, we're building something here. This whole following Yahweh thing, it's not good for society. You're not going where we're going. Of course, what Pharaoh and Egypt were building was never good for Israel. 
They're not citizens there. That's not their home. Even then, everything that Egypt built is crumbled and gone now. A couple of dusty pyramids left. But isn't that the attack that we get from our culture? Couldn't you hear some of the people in political power today saying that? You Christians and these things that you stand for, it's not good for society. You're not building what we're building. You're not going where we're going. Get back to work. Get back on our side. Toe the line. There's a price to pay for those who will stand against this worldly system, for those who are willing to say, no, I'm not, I'm not building what you're building. I'm not going there. I don't value the things that you value. I don't treasure the things that you treasure. I don't serve the master that you serve. There's a price to pay. It'll cost. It's exactly what happened to John the Baptist. He opened his mouth. He said, hold on a second. Herod, it is not okay for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife. I'm not going to buy into this worldly system that says just do whatever you want. If it makes you happy, if it feels good, do it. Um, That's not okay. Lost his head. He got killed for it. Jesus promised in this world you will have tribulation. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you too. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, Uh, We sat down with our elders and just spent um, the better part of a day just going through the Gospels and asking the question, what is a disciple as Jesus defines it? Because that's what we want to build here, is disciples according to how Jesus defines a disciple. You know what surprised me that just continued to come up clearly and consistently is Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to leave everything. If you're going to follow me, count the cost. If you follow me, there's going to be suffering and hardship. He makes no bones about it. He often leads with it. This is going to be hard. You want to come? This is going to make you an enemy of everyone around you. You want to join me? You will have to sacrifice your very life. Let's go. It only makes sense if you're willing to say, this world and the things here just are not as glorious. They just don't matter as much as God, as much as being with Him. That's Jesus' definition of what it means to be a disciple. So we ought not to be surprised by that. We ought ought to expect this absolute opposition to God that is going to trickle down into opposition for us and suffering for us and hardship in this world. And the question then is, to whom will you turn? Where do we go? When you face suffering, when the going gets tough, where will you go? And we see two different responses between the foreman of Israel and Moses. So the foreman here, um, it seems that Pharaoh had his taskmasters, and those taskmasters then appointed uh, Israelites as foremen over groups of workers. And so these are kind of the highest ranking Israelites in the eyes of the Egyptians. Um, And listen to what the foremen do, starting in verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is of your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. 
No straw will be given to you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of your bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. So the foremen are beaten because of the Israelites' inability to fulfill Pharaoh's impossible task. And they're at the end of their rope. We don't know what to do. And so they cry out for help from Pharaoh. This is amazing. These are Israelites. And they come in and they say, Pharaoh, we're your servants. Why have you done us wrong? This isn't fair, Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? Shouldn't they come in and say, no, no, we're God's servants? No. No, they want to appease Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't back down. You, you must be bored to be making this stuff up, to be going to serve the Lord, supposedly. Get back to your work. This isn't good for society. You're not building what we're building. Getting no sympathy from Pharaoh Instead of turning then to God, they turn against God. This is, this is so tragic. Moses and Aaron meet them outside of Pharaoh's throne room. And they say, God judge you, Moses. You made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You're the one who's made us Pharaoh's enemies. You're the one who's brought this upon us and now he's going to kill us. This isn't Pharaoh's fault. This is your fault. Who are they really turning against? Moses and Aaron acted in obedience to God. They spoke the words of God. These foremen have the boldness, the audacity to say, God, judge you, but they're the ones who are throwing out the word of God, trying to appease Pharaoh, trying to get a comfortable life in Egypt. We don't want to leave Egypt. We just want to be more comfortable here. Man, this happens today, doesn't it? Don't we see this? We see it on a large scale. Um, this is the United Church. As an obvious example, they, they've attempted to appease the pressure of the world. The world says, no, no, no. Don't tell us that homosexuality is wrong. You're not building what you're building. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll push that out of the word of God. They said, don't be so exclusive. You guys have this idea that, that only those who follow your God are going to heaven. Only those who trust in Jesus. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, no. We'll push the word of God under the bus again. We'll appease the world. Anybody, anybody can go to heaven. Uh, they, they just ordained their first openly atheist pastor. I don't know how that works. That doesn't make sense to me. But look what they've been willing to push away as God's word in order to appease the culture, in order to say, hey, we're building what you're building. We're going where you're going. Let our life be easy here. We don't want to fight with Satan and sin and the world. We want to be friends. We value that. It's tragic. They felt the pressure of society and they were more willing to put away the word of God than to be rejected by the culture. They gave more glory to the world than glory to God. 
Another example, sorry, it's just an easy example, is Joel Osteen. And I know a lot of people listen to him, and, and I frequently get um, comments about tearing him down, but, but that's why I think even more it needs to be done. When, when he's asked directly, is a Muslim going to heaven? Is homosexuality a sin? And he says, who am I to say? I don't judge. We don't talk about sin. We don't go there. That's not my place. Look, I'm not an expert either. I'm not an authority, but I know what God's word says and it's clear. And I'm willing to take the ire of the culture to just stand with God's word. He's turning against God's word to find sympathy in the culture. He's going to Pharaoh to try to make things better. But let's bring this closer to home because on a smaller, more subtle scale, we wrestle with this constantly, don't we? Every decision we make, we're asking, do I value the input, the wisdom, the pressure of this world, or do I value the word of God? We have places in our lives where we're following God would cost us. It would be hard. It's not what my heart wants. It's going to make me a target in, in my workplace or in my family. It's going to demand sacrifice that I don't know if I'm willing to pay. This isn't the easy way. And our temptation to justify it, to appease the world with our own sin and, and just say, you know, God would never want me to do that in this situation. God, God would never want me to do that if he knew I would get mocked for it. Surely God wants me to be happy and doing this isn't going to make me happy, so that must not be what God wants. We give the wisdom of the world priority over the wisdom of God. I'm sure that command is, is generally true, but my situation is, is specific. My situation is different. That command of God can't apply to me right here and right now. I think most commonly, I know what the Bible says. I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to. There will be times that it requires immense faith to obey God, to trust Him, to follow Him in the face of an onslaught of trials. Immense pressure from Satan and sin in this world saying, that's foolishness. You deserve better. Don't, don't bind yourself to that old stuffy book. And you have two options. We can follow the foreman. We can try to appease this world by just taking the scissors to God's word or just put it down altogether. Or we can follow Moses. And he takes his concerns to the Lord. Let's look at these last verses of chapter 5. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and he has not delivered your people at all. You have not delivered your people at all. It's not what we expected. Moses doesn't go to the Lord in great magnanimous faith. He's just as troubled as the foreman. He's just as frustrated and confused as they are. 
He's feeling the pain of his people and he's, and he's grieved and he's troubled and he doesn't understand. The difference is not that the foreman questioned God and Moses did not. The difference is where they took that question, how they dealt with it. The foreman turned from God to Pharaoh. Moses takes all of his concerns and all of his frustrations, even his accusations, and he brings them to God. And these are not easy questions. Moses does not go light on God. He questions God's character. Why have you done evil to these people? He questions God's plan. Why did you even send me here? He questions God's actions. Since I came and spoke just as you commanded, it has only gone worse for them. But here's the thing. Moses trusts God enough to bring those questions to God, to hold tighter to God in the midst of his confusion. Maybe a silly example, but Friday we were setting up these curtains so we'd have them Saturday night. Um, the cadets are going to be in here all day Saturday with our curtains set up. And the, the building manager said, well, are these curtains sturdy? Are they going to get knocked over? And, and I kind of did one of these, yeah, they're okay. And I gave it this kind of gentle wiggle thinking, I hope it doesn't fall over. Um, here's what Josh does. Josh goes, I think so, bam, bam. Yep, they're good. He wailed on them. Who had more faith in the curtains? Josh did. I was scared to bring my concern to the curtain because I didn't want to topple it. I didn't want to bring it crumbling down. Josh says, oh, they'll stand. They'll handle it. I know some of you are frustrated right now with God's plan and where he's brought you in your life. It doesn't make sense. This is hard. This is not where I thought we'd be. This is not what I thought would be happening. God, where's this blessing that you promised? I don't understand. It's only gotten worse and not better. Maybe it seems like ever since you followed God, this, your life has just been a spiral. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to pretend like I have all the answers and I know what God is doing. I don't have all the answers. But he does. He's big enough to handle those questions. Now, this isn't the place you want to stay, right? This isn't a good place to live in the long term. This is not Moses' finest moment. He's questioning God. He's doubting God. But if that's the reality of your heart, the way to deal with it is to open it up before God, to lay it before him, to bring your concerns, admit to him your, your doubts and your frustration. Because even that can be an act of faith, can't it? Burying, hiding those questions just kind of erodes the foundations of our faith as we tell ourselves, I'm not sure God can actually handle it. I'm not sure it's actually safe to ask my hard questions. But taking those questions to God and letting him have the full brunt of your honest frustration can be an act of faith. Because God, I believe you will answer. Because I believe you can handle it. Because I believe the problem is not with you and with your word, but with me. I'm the problem. And here's what I'm feeling. Even Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken Take those questions, your fears, your suffering, your frustration. Bring them to God. He can handle it. Take it to God, but then look at God's answer. We don't have the answer to every detail. 
But we have the final answer. Moses had that answer come in chapter 6. The Lord says, oh, this isn't the end of the story. This isn't where it stops, Moses. Now you're going to see. Now that I've drawn these battle lines, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. And they had the privilege of being rescued out of Egypt, watching God do these plagues, crossing through the Red Sea and looking back over their shoulder to see the waters of the sea collapse over Pharaoh's army and wipe them out completely. Absolute destruction for Egypt. They got to see God's victory. It was still hard for them. There were still trials. There was still trusting to be done. For us, the answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the display of God's victory. And actually, the reality of those words from Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, God had forsaken Christ. He had turned away his favor and poured on Christ the fullness of his wrath. The wrath, the forsakenness that we deserved. That act of God forsaking his son is a display of the depth of his commitment to not forsake us. No matter how dark, how hopeless it may seem, no matter how frustrated you are with God's plan, no matter what trials you face or or what obedience takes you to, you can never say with Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Question if you must question. Take your frustration to God. But look at the cross and know that, that Satan and sin and this world have ultimately been defeated. That God has once and for all declared that he is for you, not against you. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That's what the cross means. It means whatever happens between now and glory, glory is coming. That's been sealed. That part has been said and done. He will not forsake you.